Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let me bring in Michael Darden now, as I said, Chief Economist at MKM Partners. And let's start with that interview in the Wall Street Journal. There have been a series of these. He spoke to Fox Business yesterday. There was sort of an extended interview with the Financial Times a week ago as well. To me, uh, this one had a, the greatest deal of, of substance, especially when it comes to the relationship with China and, and foreign exchange. Let's start with with the dollar and what he declared uh, in that interview, Michael, as somebody who's a, an investor, an economist. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, right. Well, that was uh, unusual. Uh, it's unusual for a president to uh, to weigh in on the foreign exchange value of the dollar. Typically, the Treasury does that. And ultimately, uh, the Federal Reserve is the one that has the influence there. But where I'd like to take this is if President Trump really does believe that the dollar is too strong, that it's overvalued, what impact will that have on you know, his selection to uh, for future Fed appointments. We have three open board seats on the Fed that he can fill. He can also choose to replace uh, Fed Chair Yellen and Vice Chair Fisher as their terms come up next year. The presumption is that, you know, the Trump administration would move towards a more hawkish Fed, but that doesn't really jibe with his statements about the dollar being too strong. So maybe that that aspect of conventional wisdom will ultimately be turned on his head, and we won't see a move to a more hawkish Fed or something that came up earlier uh, on TV. Maybe he ends up asking Yellen to stay on. That would be a big shocker. It's not my call, but I think we need to at least you know put that out there. Uh, just let me ask you about sort of what this means in terms of process. Uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was traveling in Germany. He was going to the G7 finance ministers meeting, and our colleague Michael McKee asked him who speaks for the administration on currency, and he said in no uncertain terms, it is the president uh, who does. He also said, though, we should stay tuned for this semiannual report from the Treasury Department on foreign exchange uh, and currencies. We're looking ahead to that. That's supposed to come out here with, within the month. Uh, he's been preempted by the president. I mean, w- w- <laughs> is there going to be anything in that you'll be looking to, or, or does this sort of settle things, what the president said yesterday? No, I think we, you know, we know at this point that uh, <clears throat> China will not be labeled a currency manipulator. And the president's views on the dollar are that he doesn't want it strengthening. He has a commitment to try to revive manufacturing, uh, and so a, you know, a rising or high dollar uh, sort of is a is a, you know a headwind in in the face of that of that agenda. Um, so I don't, you know, expect any any big surprises. From the All right, report. Michael. Where would the next surprise come from? We've been pretty surprised, right, over the last <laughs> two, two, two weeks. Is it? Are we going to go back to talking about tax reform, or will healthcare really take precedence? Well, that's a great point. I mean, um, there was just a story out on on Bloomberg yesterday that uh, had quoted the president saying we need to move healthcare reform before we do tax reform. And the conventional wisdom after the uh, ACA repeal and replace uh, face planted. Uh, was that, you know, 
we were going to move on to, to tax reform because that would be easier. The Treasury Secretary actually even you know, made a statement similar to that. So now it looks like um, we might, you know, might be looking at another attempt uh, to, to do health care reform before tax reform. And I think these things are it's being demonstrated that much easier said than done. Um, just the, you know, the rifts within the Republican Party itself within Congress, let alone the Senate, uh, are making sweeping changes quite difficult. But so, Michael, would he not go for an easy win? Does, does he need to prove that he has the party together and he has the backing? And if that's the case, why focus on health care and not focus on something easier to get through? Yeah, that's a good point, too. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, the administration will be forced to go for, quote unquote, an easy win, meaning that the changes, whether it's regulation or taxation or health care, I think are going to be much more marginal. And, you know, you could you could characterize that as, quote unquote, easy win. But sweeping changes, I think, are going to be very, very, very difficult with the divisions uh, in in Congress and the bare, you know, thin majority in the U.S. Senate. Let's talk a bit about uh, trade. It was on the agenda at that summit uh, in Mar-a-Lago in Florida last week. The president talking with his Chinese counterpart a bit about it. Help us with the path forward here. A few days before that, you had the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, saying that he's now embarking on a 90-day undertaking to to look at uh, bad trade deals, I suppose, looking at this on a company-by-company basis. What do you expect the result of that to be in terms of of what the administration does next? How did they leave things, I guess I'm asking, uh, in Mar-a-Lago? You know, what, I, what I'll be looking for is I think what we need to focus on or what markets care about is we just need to avoid uh, moving policy in an anti-growth direction, meaning, a, you know, you end up with a trade war, you know, taking place or a move towards aggressively protectionist policies, a Smoot-Hawley 2.0. And that, you know, th- those risks look like, if anything, they've receded recently, which is, you know, which is a positive at the margin. But the idea that we can just go in and cook cutter, renegotiate, quote-unquote, bad trade deals, I think is something of a myth. Um, you know, the reality is we're probably not looking at sweeping changes there, and if there are sweeping changes, it would probably be to the negative side, and, and that's something we definitely want to avoid. You know, I, I asked you about, I was referencing the comment from Stephen Mnuchin about who speaks for the administration on currency. When it comes to trade, do we have a clear sense of that? I mentioned uh, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, Robert Lighthizer, the, the nominee to be U.S. trade representative. His nomination still held up in Congress. And then Peter Navarro floating on the periphery as well, heading up this National Trade Council. Uh, do you have a sense of who's speaking for the administration and how complicating uh, is it to have these three people uh, all fighting over this issue? Right. Well, it, it does you know, make for a bit of confusion when you hear the president or you hear Mr. Navarro speak about trade. You definitely are getting, you know, the populist, nationalist view, um, you know, more protectionist. But the other voices in in Treasury, at least, uh, seem to be pushing the other way. So while that creates confusion, I also think it's an important firebreak against, you know, radical and potentially disruptive and damaging uh, you know, policies in terms of moving towards aggressive trade protectionism or some kind of a trade war. Uh, Michael, is there a danger, and we've talked a little bit about this also on TV, that if he doesn't get health care through, that if he doesn't get tax reform through, then to get that easier win, he goes back to, you know, um, tariffs, uh, adjusted border tax or things like that? I, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. If you if you look at the history of the president, you know, the, his views on policies have evolved and changed over time. There's a lot of fluidity there. But on one specific issue, trade, going all the way back to the late 80s, I think he's 
run for president at least temporarily in every cycle. <laughs> go, yeah. Going back to the late 80s, he's had this view of trade that's mercantilist, nationalistic, uh, and zero-sum. And, and so that is a, a concern, at least for me, and I think it's a concern for markets as well. Just about 30 seconds left. We'll come back here, Michael, in just a bit. To what degree are you paying attention to Washington? When, when you look at investment writ large, how big a role is Washington playing? Well, it's probably overstated. I mean, as we saw with the attempt uh, f- with repeal and replace, it didn't go anywhere. <clears throat> Very difficult to, to get sweeping changes to take place. That said, um, there is a big focus on it. And certainly in the client meetings that I've been doing, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about Washington. Mm. And then everybody complains that they're spending too much time <laughs> talking about it and thinking about it. Um, so it's definitely topical. David Gurr with Francine Lockwood today. Tom Keene is on vacation this week back uh, in the chair on Monday. Uh, this is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We're talking with Michael Darda of MKM Partners. He's the chief economist uh, there. And let's talk a little bit about the, the Fed. There's been so much attention being paid now to the balance sheet. The parlor game shifts its focus from, from rate increases, at least, at least partially, to the balance sheet. Give us a sense of what you're thinking in light of what we've read from uh, the minutes of the March meeting, in light of what we've heard from governors and presidents and from, uh, from Chair Yellen herself. So my thinking is that it looks like the Fed is basically on this course of quarter to quarter, you know, rate hikes, 25 basis points per quarter until or unless something goes wrong or, as you mentioned, until they decide to start shrinking the balance sheet. And then um, New York Fed President Dudley said recently that when they do begin that process, probably they'll pause on the rate hikes for a while just to see how financial markets and liquidity conditions are developing. Uh, so I think, you know, the dot plot gives us some sense of, you know, what the consensus view is on the Fed in terms of uh, prospective rate rises, so probably two more this year. But I wouldn't rule out four if the data stays decent. I think they're going to continue to go quarter to quarter. If we end up with, you know, much weaker data or disruptive volatility, meaning to the extent that it looks like it might threaten the business cycle, they'll clearly uh, they'll clearly stop. Uh, but I think, you know, the base case scenario is quarter by quarter rate hikes until they start to, to, to work on the balance sheet probably later this year, early next year. So we proceed apace. Uh, I wonder sort of what, what would constitute an event big enough to derail uh, moving ahead in the way that they want to? Well, at least from my perspective, you know, I'll be watching three indicators. One is credit markets. So when the Fed initially started the taper and then was talking up rate rises, we started to see a big move up in the dollar and then pressure on credit markets. The conventional wisdom, as we talked about on on TV this morning, was that it was just an oil market story. But we did see a slowdown in the business cycle in the U.S. We had... Um, you know, really from late 14 into the middle of last year, a pretty big deceleration in year-over-year nominal and even real GDP growth. So the conventional view was falling oil will boost growth, but in fact, that was not the case. Um, So I'll be watching credit markets very Mm -hmm. closely and inflation expectations. And then uh, some of the monetary aggregates that don't include excess reserves like M1 money growth, for example, that one weakened a lot coming into early last year and and now has recovered back into – to uh, recovery ranges. So if those indicators look healthy, then I don't think we need to worry about the Fed either raising rates further or potentially shrinking the balance sheet. If those indicators are rolling over, then we're going to have to worry more. And then it's, you know, 
there's some su- subjectivity in terms of what constitutes a material weakening, but I would just say a sustained, you know, adverse move in, in any or all of those indicators, and I would become increasingly worried. Worried, meaning, Michael, that they that it would actually stop the Fed from hiking? What needs to happen for the Fed to actually say, you know what, one rate hike, if at all, this year? Well, I think you'd need to see um, ongoing softness in the macro data. So there's some concern that Q1 GDP looks weak. I think it's, you know, we'll have to see what the numbers suggest and then whether there's a bounce back in Q2. Uh, but the payroll figures, you know, we, we got a disappointing report for March. But keep in mind that underlying organic labor force growth is probably only 75K to 125K. And if it turns out that that headline number on payrolls, you know, it, you know, if it turns out that we either get upward revisions or we're bouncing back, the Fed's going to want to tighten further to to uh, to temper that. So I think you'd need pretty weak data uh, in a sustained fashion or what looks like uh, disruptive volatility shocks. You know, Is disrupt- that dollar strength? It could be, but I think it would be it, they're not going to react to the dollar uh, per se. But if the dollar is moving uh, coupled with adverse moves in credit markets and inflation expectations, then they will definitely take note. It took a while for them to, to wake up to that uh, moving into 2016, but they eventually did move to the sidelines, and that was ultimately the right move. Uh, conditions stabilized, and then the Fed was able to start raising rates late last year and was, you know, and then followed up. Um, you know, just recently, and and those moves were not disruptive because they properly, you know, paused for a period of time. So no need to to go there at this juncture. I don't think you know that you know that we're looking at those kinds of disruptions. So I think they'll be able to continue with quarter to quarter moves. All right, Michael Darda, thanks very much for joining us today, both on uh, radio and television. Great to see you once again, Michael Darda, chief economist with MKM Partners here in our 1130 studios uh, in New York. who was kind enough to join us on television earlier this morning, as well as we got those J.P. Morgan uh, earnings. And before we dig into the numbers in, in specific here, Ken, let me just ask you about broad themes. Fran and I were talking about the contrast here between equities trading and fixed income. What are you seeing shape up when you look at J.P. Morgan and you look at Citi this morning? Uh, the key area is really in, in capital markets where um, very strong for J.P. Morgan. It was mixed at best for Citi. Uh, this may suggest some market share gains for J.P. Morgan. You know, obviously, always near the top in terms of the league rankings for equity, uh, fixed income underwriting, etc. Uh, city uh, trading also uh, in areas related to equities was okay, uh, but it seems that the year-over-year comparisons for City um, were at best okay. Uh, they did a beat in terms of a dollar twenty-five versus dollar ten last year, um, but we really don't see across the board the same strength that we've seen in J.P. Morgan's results today. How much of a surprise was it to you when you got the the, the read on fixed income trading from from J.P. Morgan again beating estimates uh, with some some significance there? How big a surprise was that to you? Oh. 
first quarter is typically the strongest quarter for fixed income trading. And then in a rising rate environment and a little bit more of risk-taking by, let's call it, institutional clients, all this led to very strong results. We also got an indication of this really from the monthly market exchange data uh, that we get. Ken, talk to me a little bit about Citigroup. So we're just getting the story, generating the most revenue from fixed income trading in three years. Are you concerned that they won't be able to keep it up? It's likely that for for this year that we will see flat to up single digit for fixed income trading. Um, A lot relates to investor confidence, risk-taking, and uh, fixed-income trading, along with equities, really have not seen a lot of volatility. Volatility tends to initially be good for trading revenue, like fixed-income, and then it creates uh, kind of a a pocket where uh, investors are on the sidelines. Uh, Citigroup, the consumer bank, uh, revenue increasing 1%. That's actually a touch below what analysts were were expecting. Um, Is that their uh, kind of Achilles heel? Yeah, that's right. So I don't think it speaks to the economy, the confidence of, you know, of the consumer. Um, you know, when you look at the products related to consumer lending, um, you know, I would want to see numbers like, you know, 3 4% growth, and it was only 1% for Citi. You know, Citi doesn't have the breadth of franchise and domestic consumer banking. They are very strong in credit cards, though. Where are the deficits as you see them? When you look at these two earnings reports, where are the, the problem spots uh, that, that stand out to you? Uh, the, the problem spots really relate to, um, as the last question, with the consumer, confidence. Confidence from the CEOs for M&A. Mergers and acquisitions was actually down year over year, but it was made up by strong debt and equity underwriting, particularly IPOs like Snap in the first quarter, where J.P. Morgan was the lead, City was in it as well. So that's one area. second area would be related to um, anything on as it speaks to the business climate and regulation. Uh, Right now, it's pretty much business as usual. Um, Again, it may not be in the results, but on expectations that in a Trump administration and pro-business, over the course of 2017, we're going to see some easing on some of the guidelines, whether it be Dodd-Frank or some of the agencies in terms of how they interpret bank regulation. We're talking with Ken Leon of CFRA here as we get results from a city and Wells. Got results a little earlier this morning from J.P. Morgan just to get everyone up to speed on where things stand. We're going through those earnings reports now. J.P. Morgan starting its call with reporters. That's just under Wayne. Again, you can follow along at TLIV. Uh, go on the Bloomberg as you listen to us uh, here. Uh, Ken, you mentioned looking ahead to what may or may not happen out of Washington. How important to banks, uh, to the bank's bottom line, is some sort of reform of, of, of uh, financial regulation in the U.S.? So the, the managements, uh, you know, are very conservative. They're kind of living with the condition of Dodd-Frank. Um, I think it gets into some of the areas or, or, or products that they can get involved in with a little bit more risk-taking. No one's going to remove capital requirements or put the banks or the country at risk. Um, but it's more on the edge, the, that ability to maybe enable them to take 
capital and put it in the principal um, into a little bit of riskier areas to get higher returns. I don't think it's the return of prop trading. Uh, that's not going to happen. But um, I think the mandate from the Trump administration, both for the SEC, perhaps with the appointments over the next 18 months with the Federal Reserve, is more of an accommodative um, environment for banks. We've got about 30 seconds here before we'll go to break. We'll come back with you in just a little bit here. But let me ask you, Ken, what we learned from Jamie Dimon this morning in terms of his outlook on the economy. We had his letter to shareholders last week or the week before. It's all a fog. I can't remember which. But uh, what did we learn today about the economy? Yeah, so uh, especially in the meat and potato areas of banking, which is consumer bank lending and also business, particularly small uh business, it's very good. Uh, we're seeing uh, up indicators for employment. Uh, we're seeing consumers still confident, which means that the housing market is still very good, and consumer loans, including auto loans, are, are good as well. Ken, we haven't talked about uh, Wells Fargo. We approach those earnings a little bit differently, Fred and I were discussing before we went to you uh, on the phone. Uh, obviously, there's this fake account scandal still looming. Uh, when is this bank going to get beyond it? We saw the clawbacks just a couple of days ago of uh, John Stump's uh, pay package. Uh, how desperate is this bank to get beyond it, and when's it going to happen? Well, it, it really starts with the senior management, and even in today's earnings release, there's a tone of talking about um, you know, culture and doing right for the customer uh, in the earnings release. Um, you know, with that, uh, it also ties to how they measure performance for employees, uh, particularly those, you know, who are at the bank branches, et cetera. So all this is part of rebuilding their brand. It's going to take some time. Uh, the results are okay. They're not great. Uh, but this is more of a traditional commercial uh, lending bank than one like J.P. Morgan, which is global in, in all respects for uh, the capital markets and investment banking. Can we talk at some length on this show about the European banks? And uh, you look at Credit Suisse, you look at Deutsche Bank, you've got chief executives who have big plans to turn those banks around, turn them into uh, new entities. Uh, what's, a, what's a Jamie Dimon or a, a, what's Mr. Corbett thinking as he looks overseas to Europe uh, and thinks about the role that he could play in rejiggering or reinventing banks here uh, based in the U.S.? I think we're, what we're going to hear from Jamie Dimon and, and J.P. Morgan at, at 8.30 on the call is going to be that, you know, their rankings in, in Europe in particular is number one or two, and they are uh, taking market share as some of the major European banks, uh, whether it be Deutsche Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, UBS, et cetera, continue to be shifting away from the investment banking capital market areas, well, sometimes a little bit riskier, uh, in trading uh, to the more conservative wealth management areas. Ken, you're breaking my heart. I'm in London. Is some <laughs> European CEO at some point going to say enough is enough? Or is it regulation that they'll say, well, the U.S. is deregulating or making their banks' jobs easier? We're going to do the same. Yeah, so it, it, it's almost like a two-tier issue as it relates to, you know, to the U.K. and Europe, of course, with Brexit. Um, and where employees are going to be working under the new regimes. But, um, you know, I, I think 
part of what we're seeing in Europe. You know, the economies are coming back, business is getting better, um, but the uh, strategies for the, the large banks seems to be a lot more conservative than before. Um, and then uh, given, you know, some of the leading U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan City, you know, they're in a position uh, just to gain share because uh, they fixed some of those problems a little bit earlier. Do we uh, are we expecting consolidation or some of the U.S. banks because you guys are so much stronger? Although price to book, it's looking a lot more expensive than the European banks. Can we expect some of the big U.S. majors to come in Europe and buy things? It's a very good question, and I would say probably not. I mean, when you look at unless there's some unusual situation, um, but generally. Um, you know, I think uh, most of the major U.S. banks have ground, have feet on the ground, if you will, in terms of a presence uh, um, in both uh, traditional investment banking and lending. I'm uh, you know, wondering here as we, we look ahead to what may or may not happen in Washington, just to reprise that in the last few seconds that we, we have with you here on, on surveillance. Uh, the degree to which uh, we know what regulatory reform lawmakers may be considering, whether it's going to be something that's going to come out of Congress, uh, what what banks are agitating for. We talk about regulation and reform of regulation with a, with a broad brush. What's likely to happen? What's likely to make the biggest difference to these banks? Well, you know, banks come in all different sizes, and I think um, for most banks in the U.S., it, it's trying to get out of a lot of the restrictions from Dodd-Frank just because they're so small. When you're talking about the larger global banks as we are today, um, it's, it's really more fine-tuning. They are still going to be bound by Dodd-Frank, by a lot of the capital ratios, and where there's some wiggle room, it might be in some areas where they want to get into perhaps some trading products or businesses, but not in any big strokes. Um, so I think generally when we think of deregulation, it's, it's going to be to give something more for the smaller banks. And I think that's part of the mandate from the Trump administration. All right, Ken Leon, thanks very much for, for joining us today, both on Bloomberg Surveillance on radio and television. Ken Leon of CFRA joining us on our phone lines. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. He was for six years the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. He's now the Lionel McKenzie Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester. Nariana Kuchelakota is also, I should point out, a columnist for Bloomberg View, and he joins us on our phone line. Great to have you with us. And I know Francine Lacqua eager to, to jump in here with some questions. Francine? Yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Kuchelakota. Great pleasure to have you because this is the day after the interview that we've all read where President Trump for the first time is hinting that he's open to keeping Janet Yellen at the helm of the Fed. Will he? Well, thanks. First of all, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, you know, I don't know for sure what President Trump will do, uh, but I was very heartened by his comments about uh, Chair Yellen. I think that uh, it shows that he's thinking about uh, the, that job in the right way, which is, you know, Chair Yellen has done uh, what she is supposed to do as chair of the Fed, which is to keep unemployment uh, low and to uh, uh, have inflation be close to target. That's what you're looking for in terms of what the chair is supposed to be achieving in, in, their, in their job. And so I think it's going to be very hard for, uh, for President Trump to, 
to find find good reasons for uh, to say that uh, the chair has not been able not been doing her job. Right. And he also said that he likes low interest rate policies, right? This is, again, a reversal to what he said in the past. But have you ever met a president that didn't like low interest rate policy? <laughs> well, there, there's some truth to that. I, although I, I think that um, actually, if you track what President Trump has said in the past on monetary policy, um, he has said, uh, he, sometimes sounded extremely hawkish, uh, expressed a uh, 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 you know, express positive sentiments towards the gold standard. I think on on, on an occasion. On the other hand, he's also in the past expressed um, um, recognition for uh, why low interest rates are valuable for business in terms of being able to and and uh, in terms of being able to stimulate growth for, uh, in, in in demand. So. Um, you know, I think yesterday we heard the dovish uh, President Trump. Uh, we might hear from the hawkish President Trump down the road as well. Um, but certainly, if you have a pro-growth agenda, as uh, the president has, has voiced, uh, low, uh, low interest rates are going to be your friend there. And the, the challenge for the Fed is, look, they're, they're not about keeping interest rates low. They're try- their job is to keep inflation at target and keep employment uh, at, ma- at, at maximum. And they have to just... And, and they will, I know, um, not pay any attention to what the president's pre- uh, preferences are on this on this matter. Do they have to? I mean, I, I think of what he said yesterday, and I think about this ongoing debate in Washington about the prospects for, for fiscal stimulus. Uh, did what he said yesterday give them any more grounds to debate this, um, you know, and when they next meet, say, in Washington? Well, I, you know, I think a big question for the Fed is not so much uh, the, Fed, uh, the president's preferences for low interest right. rates, but rather... Um, are they? Uh, how likely is fiscal stimulus? And then what is uh, that? What is that fiscal stimulus going to mean for the for the economy um, in terms of inflationary pressures? And I guess you could say the president has comments yesterday made uh, infrastructure um, uh, made it clear that the administration is still very very much pro infrastructure. Um, but beyond that. You know, it's really everything that the president says is really trying to, they're trying to filter into what's the outlook for the economy, what's the outlook for inflation and employment going to be. Um, I, I personally, you know, if I, if I was still on the committee, wouldn't take too much from one interview along those lines. Mm. Let me ask you about the balance sheet, the Fed weighing what to do with this $4.5 trillion balance sheet, the debate now seeming to center on whether or not the Fed can effectively unwind that balance sheet while continuing to, to raise rates. What's your, I've used the analogy, can the Fed walk and chew gum at the same time? How difficult is it going to be for the Fed to do both? Yeah, first of all, um, there's really no need, uh, and I certainly said this uh, when I was a committee member, I can, I can say it now again, there's really no reason for the Fed to reduce the balance sheet. It can uh, continue to tighten economic conditions as needed with the current size of the balance sheet. Um, so there's really no no need for it to, uh, to to reduce the balance sheet. Eventually, the number as the economy continues to grow, and this is a long ways off, the amount of excess reserves that the banking system has will return to um, uh, pre pre crisis levels just because of growth in the economy. So there's no real reason for why the Fed has to reduce the balance sheet. With that said, there's a lot of discussion as as you and your listeners have heard about the. Uh, whether or not the Fed will uh, change its reinvestment policy it would be the sort of the first step. I think the important thing for the Fed is not to think about the balance sheet as some separate object off on the side, but rather as part of a collective package of stimulus 
So if you're going to start halting reinvestments, for example, that's got to mean that you're going to be uh, raising rates more slowly, if, because your ultimate objective is uh, to be achieving um, inflation of 2% and uh, maximum employment. If you're, if you're uh, halting reinvestments, that's going to be tightening policy through your balance sheet, and then you're going to want to keep rates lower uh, than you would otherwise. Right. Uh, so what is the, the one key data point that actually you would be looking at at this point to give us clues on policy timing? Well, you know, I, I think that from the Fed's point of view, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk first from the Fed's point of view, and then I'll, I'll give a couple of my own thoughts. I, I think the Fed is continuing to watch unemployment. I think that they are, uh, you know, the chair said earlier this week that uh, unemployment was now lower than what uh, the committee as a whole saw sustainable over the long run. Uh, that's something of concern if you want, uh, listen to Fed speakers. And they're not going to be happy with that uh, continuing to be true for, for, for over an extended period. Um, and that's why I think, uh, and I, I think they worry that if they don't t- continue to tighten gradually, they're going to have to tighten very rapidly at some point and, and cause a recession. Uh, my own view is that unemployment is not a, a great metric for the health of the labor market right now. We really continue to be watching employment. The big question is, you know, how can you bring in people off the sidelines back into the workforce without uh, generating undue wage pressures and inflationary pressures? We've seen had so much success in the last three to four years on that dimension. Uh, I would really like to see the Fed continue to keep stimulus in place, be very patient about raising rates, in order to, 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 to stimulate demand, bring in more workers who are currently, uh, people who would work, who are currently uh, not in the, uh, the labor force, um, I think you could do that without generating wage or inflationary pressures. Right. In the little time we have left, can I ask you about the overseas market? We're seeing about $3 trillion of negative yielding government bonds um, have turned, you know, turning positive in recent months. What does that mean for Treasury buying? You know, I, I think the Treasury market continues to be um, one of the most liquid in the in the world, and so I, I think what that means is that you know individual price movements doesn't don't have really big effects on on uh, uh, the state of demand for for Treasuries. Um, I think we can be pretty comfortable and continue to be comfortable that Treasuries are are just a. Uh, if one kind of buyer steps away from the market, there's another buyer who's going to be willing to step in at a price that's very close to what that previous buyer was paying. So I don't, I don't, I don't see these these uh, moves as being very material at this point. Right, great to speak with you as always, Nariana Kochilakota, the former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, now the Lionel McKenzie Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester. forward to this interview all day. We're now joined by the Minister of State for Petroleum Resources of Nigeria. He is one Emmanuel Ibe Kachichku. And Minister, you join us from a 991 Studios in Washington. I remember a great interview that you gave me here in London. And of course, one of your strongest points, apart from being a great analyst, is also having a wonderful Twitter page. <laughs> I urge everyone to go and follow you, sir, on you. there. You're in D.C. Um, actually meeting with the Exxon CEO. Will you be talking about OPEC or investments? Uh, largely investments. Um, we've already had that meeting. Meeting took place in Dallas yesterday, and uh, we focused uh, on my on my own side. I focused on trying to see what we needed to do to remove whatever restrictions uh, are there to enable ExxonMobil invest more in Nigeria. 
uh, on their own side, uh, they, they also went through the processes and, and the concerns that they have. Uh, as the, 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 the available funds for investments are tightening by the day, and so countries have got to compete for this. And so they laid out what their concerns were in the fiscal areas and the, in the, in the um, policy areas and what we needed to do to get a bigger portion of that pie. Uh, Minister, on, on a larger scale, how can Nigeria secure the necessary investment to boost output as long as, for example, the oil-producing Delta region remains unsafe? Well, uh, I wouldn't use the word unsafe. It's actually becoming safe. Uh, over the last three months, we haven't had an incident. Uh, we're beginning to engage them a lot more deeply to, to move the militancy issues. Our production is beginning to go up. Uh, we're beginning to address more of the systemic uh, fiscal issues that have been in the system's fiscal and policy issues. We re recently renegotiated the arrears of debt and debtedness of the oil companies, worth over $6 billion. Worked out a five-year program on how to pay for that. Worked out a new process of cash call payments. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're taking bullishly the issues that we needed to uh, take on. So I think the, the climate is getting better, clearly, uh, for countries who have uh, been very stable in these sort of areas, especially Gulf countries. We need to we have some catching up to do. We need to run fairly fast to be able to catch up with the uh, getting our environment sane and clean and clear and, in, and inviting for investors. Uh, Minister, since you're meeting the Exxon CEO, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the oil majors. Nigeria, for example, has filed corruption charges against Shell, but also any for allegedly paying bribes to secure an oil block. What's going to be the next step in that process? Well, I've tried to distinguish between uh, the, the issues of criminality involved, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's, it's essential that for transparency purposes we deal with those, those issues. And like you know, our president is very focused on uh, a an anti massive anti-corruption drive to clean up the system. So that's welcome. But that's not taking away the advantage of the big fields, Bunga Southwest, Zabazaba, they're all part of uh, Botswana to these blocks. So what I've said is we're going to put it in two different dimensions. One, save the, the existing deals so that that way at least we can continue the massive investment and, and, uh, and growth that we, we're trying to see in the oil area on, on this field. This field is going to train cumulatively over 400,000 barrels into the system. But then we need to go back and look at the transaction itself. And frankly, if over a billion dollars was paid uh, as bribes to individuals in which, whichever mm -hmm. way, then that is money belonging to the government that was under the table. And we need to find a way of sitting down with the oil companies to get better terms and get back some of that money back on, back on the table. Uh, Minister, the IEA today said global oil inventories probably increased in the first quarter. However, they also said that OPEC's uh, implementation is near perfect. Do you expect OPEC to extend production cuts into the second half? I'm not sure we have an alternative. We've got to. Um, that is what has kept the market stable at the sort of over $50 um, uh, price per barrel that we've seen over the last one, one and a half months. So we need to overextend that when that ends in June. Uh, we need to continue to monitor and ensure that the efficiency, uh, there's absolute efficiency in terms of compliance. But more important than that, we need to begin to collaboratively bring in other players who have so far not participated. U.S. is a big issue uh, because uh, they, they, they've so far not been very willing to have conversations on this. And in any case, the shale production U.S. is throwing quite some numbers back into the field and so complicating the dynamics of, of monitoring. But ultimately, I'm one of those who are optimistic that somewhere down the road, Everybody, us, Russia, uh, the U.S., and the rest of them will see the need for a very stable oil market, mm -hmm. uh, both for consumers and for producers. But, but would Nigeria actually join the others in cutting production if the deal is extended? F for the moment, you're actually exempt from having to cut. 
Yes, we're exempt because of the unique issues we have in the, in the Niger Delta area. Uh, where, uh, my anticipation is that if all things being equal, if the infrastructure is repaired and all that, somewhere around the October-November time frame, you see us back uh, into uh, proper production numbers. And once we do that, then we're obviously willing to join, join the courts. We're a very strong member of OPEC and would like to support OPEC. Uh, Minister, talk to me a little bit more about your, your trip to Texas. So you, when do you leave D.C. to go there? No, I already I came from Texas. Have you just come back, right? Yes. Um, trip was largely, I've been going around most of the uh, chairman suits in most of the major oil companies. I did ENI about a month ago. Uh, I've just done ExxonMobil. I'll be doing Chevron uh, during the OTC next month. And uh, have, I'm lined up to do the same thing for Total and for Shell. The, the whole idea is leave whatever the local um, uh, managerial policies are. Let's talk to the big players. Uh, let's talk to mm -hmm. the guys who make the decision. See what it is we need to do. See what their perception of the policies that I'm putting in place uh, are. See what areas of collaboration we can do and ensure that we're getting a big piece of that, that investment. And also I'm challenging them to stop looking at Nigeria just in terms right. of crude, crude oil production, but also to diversify their businesses. And what was the one thing that surprised you the most in Texas? Um, one, uh, I won't call it a surprise. I've been a member of that team. Like you know, I worked for ExxonMobil for uh, nearly 15, 16 years of my career before I left to this job. So I could predictably tell where they will stand. Uh, where, where do they stand? The need for firmer policies, need for transparency to continue mm -hmm. in the way we're doing it, uh, need for a great, better fiscal conditions to enable them to continue to put some of the investment funds that they have towards Nigeria and towards other, area, other developing competing nations. Uh, but more, more important and more, uh, more, more focused is, is the fact that they, re they reiterated the fact that as right. far as they are concerned, investing in Nigeria was key for them. Nigeria was a key Minister. market. Yes. Thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure to speak to the Minister of State for Petroleum and Resources of Nigeria. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.